Anyway, so this is week three of three of one train of thought uh, within this letter to the Philippians. Um, so haven't been with us for a little while um, or don't remember, Philippians was written from a, a prison cell. Paul was in a Roman or Ephesian prison, depending on uh, what commentator's line of thinking you take. Um, it was written to this young church in first century Greece. That's where Philippi was. Um, and then just to catch you up on this line of thinking, um, two weeks ago, uh, Matt was teaching and he started this train of thought. And some of you have talked about it within your DNAs and this kind of stuff. But, but in chapter 1, verse 27 on, um, Paul commands unity and holiness, which Paul sees as kind of two sides of the same coin. The rainstorm suddenly stopped. Um, Paul sees kind of unity and holiness as two sides of one coin, but both of them start with humility. That was, that was a couple weeks ago. And then last week's text, starting in chapter 2, verse 5, Paul looks to Jesus as, as the example and pinnacle of that humility. If you missed last week, this is what we talked about. Jesus was the most humbled and humble person ever to walk the face of the earth. And also, though, he was the most exalted king forever. And, and so last week we said that Jesus' exaltation and the fact that he is alive today and on his throne and also living in us and through us by the power of his spirit, that's... That's the motive for our humility every day. His exaltation is the motive for our humility every day. And his exaltation, the fact that he's reigning and living through us by his spirit, is also the motivation for today's verses. And so we kind of left with a little bit of a cliffhanger last week. Because today's verses are, are fairly practical. They're kind of tangible. They're directive. There's commands in here. And so based on everything that we've seen in this train of thought so far... Paul says, here are some commands. Here's how to live. Okay, so I'm going to start reading in Philippians 2, verse 12. It'll be on the screen if you want. Here's how Paul starts. Therefore, so again, based on everything I've said so far uh, since chapter 1, verse 27. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, not just when I'm with you, but much more in my absence. Parents in the room, that sounds like a lot of things we say to our kids sometimes, right? Not just when I'm watching you, um, but, I'll, but even more so in my absence. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul continues, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Or your translation may say disputing. That's what we're going to go with. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering, Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should all be glad and rejoice with me. And so Paul kind of closes this train of thought we've been in. So, so talk to me a little bit. What are some of the commands that you see Paul give in this text? How, how are we supposed to live? What does he say? What's the charges that he gives to readers then and now? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Super easy to do, right? What else? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
Be glad and rejoice, he says toward the end. Anything else? Hold fast to the word of life. Hold fast to the word of life, yeah. And then commands or otherwise, as you're looking back through it or as you read it this week, and again, I hope you do read the, the texts in advance so we can kind of learn from one another, but anything else stand out to you? Anything you noticed that, that came up this week that stuck out to you? Save yours, I'm coming back to it. What? Save yours, I'm coming back to it. Okay. We're supposed to shine his lights, so. Yeah, we're supposed to shine his lights. Yeah, that's, I've heard that before. Yeah. How did these things hit you? Like, if you read this, someone came and said, hey, here's your marching orders for today. How, how do you receive that? What would be your first thought? I'll tell you mine, it, that's hard. There's a lot of things in this text that are hard to do. Anybody else? Fear and trembling are not things that I like to do. Fear and trembling are not things that I like to do. In fact, grumbling and complaining are things I like to do more than, than fear and tremble. Yeah. So, so part of today, what I, what I want to use this text for, which is somewhat familiar, I, I want to use today to, to talk a little bit less about what to think about these verses and a little bit more of how to think about verses like this. Because there's, there's two, and we, I will address the verses, but, but there's two dangers in approaching verses like this throughout the scriptures. And I'm going to label one as external and one as internal, but they're both dangers. And again, Paul's exhortation to followers of Jesus is, to, is toward countercultural humility and holiness and unity based on the previous verses and based on Jesus' own example of humility. And, and so our, our humility and holiness and unity, are these good things? We all say, yeah, absolutely. But again, there's a danger in how we often think about them. Um, and the danger is really common. And so here's, here's the external danger in coming to verses like this. These verses work out your salvation don't be fearful, or don't 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 grumble and dispute. Be glad and rejoice. There's there's times when these verses can be taught in a way that sounds like they're saturated with the gospel. After all, Paul's pointing to Jesus. Look at Jesus. He's the example of our humility, and so it sounds super wrapped up in the gospel. Paul points to Jesus, but in truth, even in teaching and looking to Jesus, these verses can be taught in a way that puts all the pressure on us and misses the gospel altogether. There's the external danger. And it feeds the internal danger because, again, the commands are hard. Like, we can, be, we can feel a lot of pressure to, to live like this. And so when we try and when we do it by our, our power, then on one hand, who hasn't done this? We try and we fail and we try again and we fail to be humble. We try and we fail to, to not grumble or dispute. And we, and we get discouraged and sometimes we give up. Anyone, anyone been there? I try, I fail, I try, I fail, I just, I, I quit. It's not worth it anymore. On the other hand, though, we look like we achieve it, but it never actually gets to our heart. And so the internal danger of stop grumbling or complaining is we may never say another word out loud, but we all know the darkness of our brains, right? We can put on a good facade and look holy but miss the heart of what God is teaching. Is that fair? So, so, so in other words, if I can say it another way, these two dangers either miss God's heart, 
because God's heart is not to put all the pressure on us, or they miss our heart in that we only modify our behavior and don't actually change from the inside. And if we land in either danger, the Bible becomes more of a rule and a law and this standard that we can't meet, and or these verses lead to empty religion like the kind that Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for throughout his life. Do you feel the tension? Do you experience the tension? My, my goal for today is to kind of cut through both dangers and find God's heart and find our heart as it relates to our obedience. So keep those dangers in mind as we walk through the verses because to avoid both, we must discover God's heart and our heart in verses like this that call us to obedience. And it starts in verse 12. So let me read there again. Verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, so different veins of Christianity explain that phrase, work out your own salvation in different ways. And, and many of them mean well, but, but many of them miss the mark and instead kind of lead us down this path toward danger. Um, as you read this week, or maybe you've been, been taught this, this passage before, uh, what, are, what, are, what has work out your own salvation meant to you? How's that been taught? What's it mean? Anybody thought about it before? I'll tell you what I think the three most common interpretations are of that phrase, work out your own salvation. First, says God saved you. What theologians would call justification. Now you live differently, which is what's called sanctification, right? God saved you. Now work that out as you live differently. Or what God started, you continued. Okay? God started a good work in you, so you continue it. Another vein of, of, of thinking on this is well, you just worry about yourself. So you work out your salvation and let everybody else work out their own salvation. Now, given the theme, this is the danger of breaking books apart too much or proof texting. Given the theme we're in, this train of thought about unity and humility before God and others and holiness with others, number three doesn't make any sense. Like you work out yours, let them work out theirs. There's no possible way that's what God is saying through Paul here. But more than that, even if the verse was sanctification focused, God saved you, so clean up your act. God did this great thing, so live in a way to reflect God's salvation. Even if that were true, verse 13 still says that whose work is it that enables that to happen? It's not our possible work. It's not our strength. It's not our power. It's God's work and God's power alone that would enable any growth or change. And that flies in the face of a lot of what's either taught or assumed in Christianity today, not the magazine, just the Christian world today, that says work hard, try hard, force it, it's on you, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, figure it out. And so the right posture in our sanctification is rather one of prayerful reliance. This is what we've seen Paul communicate throughout Philippians. And fear and trembling in that interpretation, if it's like God saved you, now you work it out, fear and trembling is often an unintentional maybe, but a scare tactic that says, hey, you have to earn it. 
you have to make your life worthy of Jesus. And if you miss the mark, watch out. Because God, who is all-powerful, all holds you to this standard that you have to meet. So you better be fearful and tremble. Again, I'm, I'm kind of generalizing a vein of teaching, but has anyone ever heard this verse communicated like that? Again, it, it wouldn't be... It wouldn't be so overt, but that's that's kind of subtly what gets woven in. God saved you. You'll work it out. And if you don't, you better, you better be afraid. That's not God's heart. That's, that's not the train of thought that Paul's been leading us on. And so I want to invite us to consider another interpretation. That is to say that in this context, if we're seeing this as one train of thought that started a couple weeks ago or started a few verses ago back in 127, then what Paul is charging us to is less about you changing your life based on salvation and more about deciding what version or definition of quote unquote salvation you're going to pursue. In other words, how are you going to define salvation in the first place? Here's what I mean by that. Again, we're coming out of two weeks of Paul teaching on humility, holiness, unity. Last week we saw that in the first century Roman world, there was one Lord whose name was Caesar. And Paul's claim just before this verse, like one or two verses before the passage we read today, is that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the, the name that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That treasonous cr claim at the time is not just offering Jesus as an opposing or alternate Lord, but saying, no, he is the one true Lord, both in first century Rome and today. Caesar, the Roman Lord, offered one definition of salvation. One message of salvation to the citizens of Rome. Jesus, as a better Lord, offers not just an opposing or alternate definition of salvation, message of salvation, but again, he offers the one true message of salvation to us as citizens of heaven. If I'm honest, I love the unity of Old and New Testament. It's not unlike chapter 20. We look to chariots and horses for salvation. No, we look to the Lord. Because throughout history, there's been all sorts of definitions of salvation. There's been all sorts of things we've said, if I could just get that, I'd be satisfied. If I could just get that, life would be good. If I could just get it, it's, it's, it's a redeemer. It's a functional savior that we run after. And there's dozens of them begging for our attention every day. And so work out your salvation is Paul kind of culminating this, this vein of thought and it's just as vital a decision for us in the 21st century as followers of Jesus as it was in the first century for followers of Jesus. Here's what he's saying. Work out what kind of salvation you want. Do you want the kind offered in chariots and horses? It's available to you. Do you want the kind offered by Caesar in Rome? It's available to you. Do you want peace and power and profit? Man, you can go find that. There's plenty of forms of salvation that existed. Do you want fame? Is that what salvation looks like? You can find that. Do you want money? There's many ways to find that. Comfort, if you always want to be right, lots of different salvations are vying for our attention. Outside of Jesus, what's, what's, what's yours or what are yours? What would save this? What would fix this? What would redeem this? What would make it right? What would make life good?
work out what kind of salvation it is you want. Caesar's? Jesus's? Or one of the thousands of others that our siren calls pulling to us every day? I, I, I find this way of interpreting this verse is the only one that makes fear and trembling make any sense to me. Because there's lots of people and lots of worldviews offering other versions of salvation. And so Paul's saying, as you decide your definition of salvation, the one you're going to pursue today and every day, be really sober-minded about it. Because you're deciding that before the holy God who we said last week is the one name that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to be the true Lord for all of eternity. And as we decide the definition of salvation we want to pursue, even more do we get to and must we rely on God to do his good will and his good work in us. Because if we're honest... Even if we admit that all the other definitions are less than God's definition of salvation, even still, every day, I know this is true for me, I assume it's true for you too, if I'm left to my own power, I will settle for a lesser version of salvation. And so we're reliant on God, prayerfully reliant on God to help us see his definition of salvation and to work out in us his goodwill. Does this make sense? I'm camping out here because I think this is different from how a lot of us are taught this verse. A lot of us are taught it in a way that's like, God saved you, you better go put it into practice. Be careful because God might get you if you don't. And that's not what he's saying. What definition are you going to pursue? Work that out in your mind. Work it out in your heart. It's an everyday work it out in this situation. And it's vital to get these right, because again, this is the culmination of Paul's train of thought. Therefore, in verse 12, means because of Jesus' ultimate humility, serving us to the point of death and death on a cross, and because of Jesus' ultimate exaltation, sitting right now on his throne as king today and forever, because of all that, therefore, we decide every day what definition of salvation we're going to pursue. That's a big deal. And so it's with that right understanding that Paul shows us how the Spirit leads us to live out the definition of salvation that God gives us in everyday life and relationships. So I'll I'll read the rest of this again. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or, again, we're going to use the term disputing because it's actually more correct than questioning, which is what my Bible says. So do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, You should be glad and rejoice with me. So we don't have to think too far. don't have to think too too deeply. don't have to think too far back uh, to think of God's people grumbling and disputing. Right? Whether amongst each other or against God. So so 
from the first pages of our Bibles. God made perfect creation, and Adam and Eve wanted the one fruit that was put off limits. God saved Israel from slavery in Egypt, and before long, they're grumbling about the way that God provided miraculously for them the kind of food that they provided. Israel grumbled because they didn't have a king, and on and on and on and on. When's the last time you grumbled? And maybe the question is, can you count it in minutes or hours? Because it's definitely not days, right? So when's, when's the last time we grumble? Similarly, anybody seen any followers of Jesus dispute one another recently? Maybe, just a little bit. There's, I, saw, I saw a meme. It's the first time I think I've ever said that out loud. I saw, saw a meme that said, is it a thing? It's wrong. It's like, man, isn't that how it feels? If it's a thing out there, somebody will tell you it's wrong. And I want to submit we see that within the church and among followers of Jesus, perhaps more than outside the church and among folks who don't yet follow Jesus. Man, we dispute theology, and we dispute practice, and we dispute justice, and we dispute spiritual gifts, and we dispute baptism, we dispute ministry philosophy, and we dispute music style, and we dispute politics, and we dispute freedom. Is it okay to drink alcohol? Is it okay to watch this movie? Is it okay that our kids read Harry Potter? Everything on earth feels like it's under dispute. And I think that's Paul's point. It's because everything on earth is under dispute. Matt opened up Paul's train of thought a couple weeks ago explaining God's dual call to his people. Again, unity on one hand, holiness on the other. That's based in humility, which is considering others more highly than yourselves. We saw a few verses ago. And humility and unity are not optional. But they have to start with the kind of humility we saw in Jesus last week. In today's verses, a lack of grumbling and disputing similarly only starts with the kind of humility that we saw in Jesus last week. Because if the church is divided, and if followers of Jesus grumble and dispute each other at every single chance that we get, or in other words, if we lack unity, one side of the coin, then there's nothing different in us than the rest of the non-believing world around us. And at the same time, if our ethics and and goals and ways of life look very much like that of the non-believing world around us, in other words, if we lack holiness, the other side of that same coin, then there's nothing different about us than the not-yet-believing world around us. But if, by God's grace, we are laser-focused on Jesus more than ourselves, then people see in us a better version of salvation than the one that they've worked out for themselves, and they see in us a better way to live. And that sounds like good news. Carol emailed me this week. Um, She had found an article on this Greek god at the time that Paul was writing to a Greek city. And the Greek god's name is Momos. Anybody know the god Momos? Literature majors, anyone in the room? This is one I had to look up. He's not one. He's not like Zeus. We all know Zeus. Momos is a little more of a you know second second tier god. Um, he got kicked out of the pantheon. Actually, he got kicked out of the pantheon because he was a mocker and full of scorn. Do it. Like, what does it take to get kicked out of yeah. that kind of pantheon? This is this is what it takes to get kicked out. He mocked the rest of the gods. 
it's not going to end well for you. <laughs> um, he was full of scorn. Malmus was arrogant and always right and never wrong. And he was full of blame and condemnation and divisiveness toward the rest of the Greek gods and toward humans. And so Carol sent me this article, and then she said that she and Roger were talking about, like, where do we see that today? And Roger's response was? Twitter. Twitter. <laughs> and I don't think, like, yes, absolutely. Where else? We're not going to talk about this. But, but think, like, where else do you see scorn and mockery and arrogance and, and always having to be right and condemnation and divisiveness? And, it, like, I mean, we could fill one of these butcher papers with tiny writing and think of all the places in the world that we see that. In verse 15, Paul says that life in Christ is to be blameless, innocent, and without blemish or pure. Here's the enthralling thing that made Carol email me this week. Those Greek words, in the way they're written, not just connotate, but use letters that say we should live the opposite of momos. So I'm not going to pronounce it, but it would be like, Amamusa kind of thing. Like the, the, he's saying we live the opposite of Momus. Blameless, innocent, without blemish or pure. In other words, in Jesus, we get to live an anti-Momus life in a world that is full of Momus. It's, it's Bob Roberts, who was one of our external elders. Our external elder says it another way. He says, living out our faith in, a, in the public square living as the people of God in a world that is not the people of God is so forgotten by many Christians today, but we have to recapture that. Why? Because as Paul says in these verses, which is echoing Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and echoing the very name of our church, foreshadowing, I guess the very name of our church, we are called to be light shining in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Because like every not-yet-believing society in history, ours is full of neighbors and friends and co-workers and family members who are seeking salvation but are working out some other form of salvation that relies on themselves or relies on some politician or some famous person or some self-improvement or some ability that they have to earn something or do good and, or, or get to some specific letter or to something. A million other things that is less of a salvation than the one Christ offers us. And living like that, living as lights in a crooked and twisted generation is not an easy call. Paul even admits that it's not an easy call. This life, this life of unity and holiness and sacrifice, it's a sacrifice. If Paul dies, he says, it'll be a small sacrifice. It'll be a drink offering. I'll know that I didn't run in vain if, if you Philippians have lives that are true faith, full of true faith. And so bottom line, again, just to zoom out for a minute, we have Paul, who's in prison for his faith, who himself is an example of laying down his life for God and others. We saw that in chapter one. Do I want to live or do I want to die? It's better for me to go with, be with God, but if I die, it's for your benefit. Paul is an example of laying down his life for God and for others. He's in prison for following Jesus, who humbled himself to the point of death, and not just death, but death on a cross, and is the greatest example of laying down his life for God and others. 
So Paul, who is following Jesus, is saying, this is the kind of life. And this is the kind of everyday sacrifice and countercultural view of salvation and unity and humility and holiness that the Spirit empowers us to. And you know what? He says it's not exceptional. It's not just for a few. It's not even unattainable. This should be the common life among followers of Jesus. And when we see it, it leads us to rejoice in the last couple of verses. And again, why would we rejoice? When we see unity and humility and holiness and this kind of stuff, it's, it's not because we did it so well. That's the opposite of humility, right? Look, I finally achieved humility. Look at me. Oh, man. Back to square one. It's not because we do it so well. The, the rejoicing is not self-exaltation. Again, Paul recognizes that it's only the Spirit of God who could produce this posture in us. Because left to our own devices, we're not going to be holy. We're not going to be unified. We're not going to be humble. Anyone tried to be those things amidst folks that you don't particularly agree with? You can do it for a moment, right? But eventually that gives out. We've said throughout, this is a hard call. I'll go a step further. It's impossible. We're not going to leave with like a, you can do it. Yeah, that's not what Paul says here. It's impossible. We can fake it. We can hold something for a short term, but it won't last. So when we see this countercultural unity, humility, holiness, when we see this lack of grumbling and disputing, when we see followers of Jesus living as light, the light of Christ in the public square amidst a crooked and, and twisted generation, we rejoice. Because when we see that, it's the fruit of God's true definition of salvation at play. That's what leads us to rejoice. Does this make sense? I hope you hear this as, as, as a freeing thing. I hope there's a burden lifted off of us in this. Again, all we're trying to do today is walk, be, walk the line between these two dangers. It's common to read these verses in a way that feels like a burden and puts this unattainable standard of God on God's people. In fact, we, we use this passage in a lot of the training we do with pastors to, to tell pastors it is possible to teach the Bible, the words on the page, without teaching the gospel. Because you can teach the words on this page and say, look, Jesus was humble, you should be humble too. That's teaching the Bible, but it's putting all the pressure on us and, and humility and depravity and other things we hold to tell us, like, we, we can't do it. And so we put this false dichotomy on people. Let me say it another way. Maggie and I are walking through a little new city catechism for kids. We're just memorizing truths about God week after week for a year. It'll, be, it'll take us longer than a year, right? Um, and there's these three weeks of questions in a row. One says, what does the law of God require? And the answer is, anybody, anybody in new city catechism, folks, you know the answer? What's the law of God require? The answer is to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second question from these three weeks in a row is, does anybody keep the law perfectly? I'm going to summarize it for you. No, is the answer. But that's what a lot of us hear, and that's what a lot of us read, and that's what a lot of us have been taught when we approach the scriptures. Here's what God says, but I can't do it. And so again, we try and fail, and it leads us to be defeated and give up. 
Or it leads us to put on a good face and be a hypocrite, which means an actor. And we put on a good act in this command, but it never actually changes our heart. But this third question in this week, three-week progression says, if no one can keep the law, why does God give it? You remember the answer? It's three reasons. One, God gives us the law so we can know the nature of God. Two, so we can know our own nature. And thus we need a Savior. Good job. And it's there that we find good news. Because Philippians 2, this train of thought we've been on for three weeks, helps us know the nature of God, right? Like we see the very heart of God, the humble, holy heart of God in these verses. These verses help us know the contrasting nature of ourselves, that we can't do it. The answer is not try harder. The answer is don't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. What's the answer to this? Just that we need a Savior. Because we can't and we won't conjure up humility like Jesus, at least not in our hearts, even if we make it look really good on the outside. We can't and we won't stop grumbling and disputing by our own power, at least not in our heads. We may not say it out loud, but we know. We get ourselves. We know how we think. We won't and we can't trust in true salvation over all the others, or we can't and won't live as countercultural light shining in a public square, and we can't and won't rejoice in a sacrificial life. None of those things come naturally to us, and we can't conjure them up in ourselves. And so it's not enough to read these verses and say, Jesus did it. You should too. Because to try to do these things on our own power, to quote Paul in verse 16, is to labor in vain. It'll be utter vanity. We'll try and fail and try and fail and never feel like we're getting better. And so it'll be like a Sisyphus kind of moment to go back to another Greek myth where we may try to push the boulder up the hill and then find it crashing back down on us. And we'll try again and crash back down and cry, try again and crash back down. We'll be really bold and say more than just being a labor in vain, to try to do these things by our own power is unchristian. Because there are Jewish rabbis in synagogues across Fort Worth today, and there are Muslim imams in mosques across Fort Worth today who could take Philippians 2 and say, we believe Jesus was a good prophet. We believe you should follow his example. Jesus, Isa, was humble. You should go make yourself humble like Jesus. So there's lots of quote-unquote Christian preaching and teaching on these verses that, again, teach the Bible and put the pressure on us to follow Jesus' example, but don't give us the freedom of the good news and rather make us put our trust in ourselves rather than what Paul says in verse 16, trusting in the word of life. Because who alone is the word of life? Jesus, the Word made flesh. The one who tells the Pharisees, you look to the scriptures to find life, but true life isn't found in them, it's found in me. Here's how we'll wrap up. And grab your communion, open the little, little lid. These verses and any command in scriptures, as we approach them, the goal has to be greater than Look at Jesus, now go do it. 
every command and every verse in Scripture shows us the New City Catechism question. Shows us God's nature, shows us our nature, and shows us our need for a Savior. And the good news is that on one hand, and as we take the little bread wafer thing, the good news is that on one hand, Jesus did fulfill every single command that we can't and won't in this passage and in the entire law and in the entire teaching of the scriptures. He was 100% holy, 100% humbled, 100% unified with God the Father and God the Spirit to the point of death. And so we take and eat as we proclaim Jesus's body broken for you. And on the other hand, as we hold the little shot of grape juice, Jesus' death is for us, yes, as an example of humility, but more than that. In his death and resurrection and in his exaltation and in his sending out the Spirit, Jesus pours out power from outside of us to come into us. And that's the only power that we have to rightly define salvation by God's standards. It's the only power that we have to obey. It's the only power that we have to live the kind of life that God calls us to in these verses. And so we proclaim and reflect on Jesus's blood poured out for you. So let me close this train of thought with a charge and a commission as we're sent out to be salt and light in the public square before everyone we meet this week. As we pursue these commands, as we pursue unity, humility, and holiness, we reflect Jesus's resurrection power and our full true faith and salvation as we make disciples of Jesus by seeking his kingdom in everyday life. But our right posture, church, as we do so, is not try harder do more, fear God's punishment, when, not if, we let him down. Rather, as we've said throughout tonight, our right posture is prayerful reliance on God the Spirit, who alone works out God's salvation in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Amen? Have a good week.